Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey guys, how you doing? Morning. Uh, all right, so we're we're going to continue on in our series uh, about judges, and uh, I, I'm really excited about this. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things that I want to make clear is this term of judge. Um, for us, we think of, you know, a judge, you know, he sits behind a table and he bangs gavel, right? Uh, and, but that's not, that's not how we see them played out in the book of Judges. And that's not what we should be thinking of when we hear that God is, you know, judge. These judges, they don't just levy a, a decision and stand, you know, behind the scenes and just make a decision and bang a gavel. These judges actually take part in the judgment, they go and make things right. They're a part of restoration and rebuilding. They're a part of uh, going out and making things actually happen. And that's the way we need to understand that the term judge in the Bible is used. When we talk about God as a judge, we're not talking about a judge that's distant, but a judge that's present and actively a part of judgment. Uh, and so think about it like this, like a judge that in our time that would bang a gavel and make a decision about someone that was a criminal made poor choice, but all he has to do is community service and the judge levies the decision and then follows up with that person and finds a place for them to do that community service and then drives them to the place to do the community service and then does the community service with them. That's the type of judge we're talking about. Not someone that just sits there and makes a decision offhand Someone that actively takes part in it. So the whole point is restoration, not just something. You'd probably think that was a really cool judge. Well, that's your God. So, pretty cool. Uh, and that's what we see throughout the book of Judges. Another thing that I've been noticing, especially as I was reading through this and listening to Alex's sermon last week, definitely go back and, and watch that. But um, there's a, an importance of the details in these stories that I think uh, if you pay attention to them, and look a little more deeply, you'll see the richness of these stories and the depth. Uh, and each one is, is unique. And I really liked uh, last week Alex unpacked Ehud. And one of the things he mentioned was that it was at this moment when Ehud was passing the idols that were set up at Gilgal that he decides to turn around and go back and face the king and kill him, defeat him. And what was the significance of passing the idols at Gilgal? Why at that moment was that the important? And we look back at Joshua and see that the Israelites crossed over the Jordan, actually crossed through the Jordan on dry land like they did the Red Sea. And that's at Gilgal. And God says, I I will be with you. Just as I was before, I'll be with you now as you enter this land and I'll be with you going on. And so it's, it's at that moment that Ehud remembers the promise that God made at Gilgal from the generations before and he remembers all that God has done for them before and it's at that moment that he has the courage and the strength to go back and face the king and defeat him because he remembers what happens at Gilgal but that's a small little detail that you don't get unless you start to look into them today we're going to be talking about Deborah and Barak and this uh, tandem judge uh, they work together and and, uh, I really enjoy their teamwork on this and and how the Bible sets it up. But the way that this story often gets read is through biased eyes. There's usually, especially nowadays, there's an idea that we're trying to look at it to prove a point or, you know, 
reiterate something that we want to have said, uh, and we, we want to use this as evidence, this story, and I don't want to do that today. I, I don't like doing that at all. I like reading the Bible for what the Bible says, and then deciding from that, what, what is that how does that impact my life? What, is, what do I believe based on what the Bible says? Not, what do I believe, and let me find where the Bible says I'm right. Is, there's a difference there, and I want us to read this story with the attitude of, you know, the Bible's, the Bible's right. And we may have problems with that at times, but the person that's wrong isn't the Bible, it's us. And I want us to try to avoid the biased eyes and just see the story for what it is, read it for what it is, and learn something out of that. But before we dive into it, let's pray. Hey God, um, I'm here again, and another opportunity that you've given me to share your word, something that I, I, I'm always excited to do, um, but I'm always intimidated by as well. Uh, I pray, Lord, that as we hear this story, read these words, that you can, Spirit, speak to our hearts, um, help us see what it says, help our, 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 our hearts and our ears be open to what you have to say to us today, uh, and just speak in this time. This is yours. We give it over to you. We came here this morning as an offering for you to speak to us and move in our lives, so I pray, Lord, that uh, you take this time and you use it for what you want, and uh, we give it over to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to look at Judges chapter 4, and we're going to read through the whole chapter today. I put in your notes, as a reminder, one of the themes that we see throughout Judges is the cycle of redemption. And it's this process that starts with sin, and, and it leads to oppression, and then the oppression leads to them crying out to God, and, and then God brings a redeemer, and then there's peace, right? And so there's this cycle that continues to repeat uh, and we see it, and it's often known as a sin cycle, but we're trying to change that narrative to make it more of a cycle of redemption. Uh, so, as we read this story, just keep that in mind and note where it is, where are these moments you see them crop up in the story. Let's start in Judges chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jobin, king of Canaan. Who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Haggayim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord of God, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And I will draw out Sisera, the the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. So one of the things that people read into this story um, 
this general notion that Deborah's a prophetess or a judge because there's no able-bodied men. We're going to discuss why that crops up, but it's just this idea. But I just want to point out, verse 4, it clearly says that she's already a prophetess and already a judge. Before this story even begins, she is already occupying those roles. And that's important because she didn't step up into someone else's shoes. These are her shoes, and this is where God's called her. She has a position that God has given her. She most likely has the gift of wisdom, and people recognize that. And regardless of who she was, they thought, well, you are really wise. So let's go and ask you questions. And she would give them her answers. She was the judge at the time. She was there for the people. There was no question of why or who or what. It was just, this is the woman. And she was a prophetess, which means that she was a messenger of God. She shared God's message, and she does that in this story. She is given a word from God, and she goes out and gives it. In this case, it's to talk to Barak and tell him it's his job to gather an army and go fight this man named Sisera. And she does it. She does a great job. I like, you'll see this, there's a theme here, how she phrases these things. She starts with a question. She phrases it as a question, probably showing her wisdom. So, she's already occupying these roles. She's already a judge. And so I don't think we need to read into this idea that uh, it's because there's no men to do the job or no men willing to do the job. Where that comes from, actually, is the way the NIV translates verse 9. I was going to throw that up there. The NIV translates verse 9. Certainly, I will go with with you. This is after uh, Barak says, I will go if you go, but I'm not going to go if you don't go. And Deborah, in the NIV, the way it translated it is, certainly, I'll go with you, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So, in the NIV, it says, because... In the ESV, which is what I was reading from earlier, is nevertheless. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't seem like too much of a difference, but I think it makes a pretty big like, theme difference, where in the ESV, nevertheless, it sounds like it was a preconceived notion that he was not going to receive the glory. It has nothing to do with his answer. It has nothing to do with his decision. It has everything to do with the fact that God was already planning on delivering Sisera into the hand of a woman. He was not going to get the glory because he was not going to be the one to defeat him, no matter what he said. The NIV would say that it's because of his decision, that little small lack of faith. Maybe he was a little scared. and He was like, well, yeah, I'd go, but only if you go with me, because that sounds like a lot of work. And, you know, I'm a little scared. So, which still shows a lot of faith in Deborah, by the way. Uh, but the way the NIV would translate it, and that's where we get this idea The cool thing about our infinite God and the awesomeness of the Bible is I think you can learn from either story. I think you could read both of those and think, wow, that's pretty cool. On one hand, if you read it the NIV way, this man shows a little bit of doubt but still goes through with it anyway. After being told he's not going to receive any of the honor and already showed a lot of doubt, he decides to go anyway. I I think that's a pretty cool story. I don't know about you, but I don't always face things head on and think, oh, right off the bat, I'm ready to go. Sometimes I I get into that moment of doubt, and it's good to know that I can continue on anyway and still be used by God. Or you could read it the other way, the nevertheless, which is the one we're looking at today in the way that I I want us to think about it. And you can see this man that was told by Deborah 
And he trusts in Deborah. He believes in Deborah. And he wants to know that this is God. And, and he trusts in her. And he wants to make sure that this is the right thing. So he says, I'll go if you go. Because then I'll know. So Deborah goes with him and says, nevertheless. And that, he still has the same, the same statement. You're not going to receive the honor. And how cool is that? That he goes anyway. That he's used anyway. That he serves anyway. He's going against 900 iron chariots, which at the time is pretty formidable. No matter how many people you've got with you, those things can mow people down. This is a scary thing. There's a reason why they're being oppressed cruelly and they haven't risen up. They have plenty of people. They were just waiting for God to be on their side. They needed to know that. Barak needed to know that. And once he did know that, once Deborah came, he said, oh, all right, if, I, if you come with me, I know God's on our side and I'll do it. And she says, you're not going to receive the honor. He's like, that's okay. That's not, that's not what I'm here for. I think that's a pretty cool thing. I think we can learn from either one of those. Let's carry on in the story. Verse 11 through 16. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zananim. Zananim. Something like that. Which is near Kadesh. Now that's just kind of like a random note that's thrown into this story. But it's important later. So just lock it away for a sec. Verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinom had gone up to the Mount Tabor. Sisera called out all his chariots. 900 chariots of iron. And all the men who were with him. From Harasheth Haggim To the river of Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak. Up! Not get up, not rise up, just up. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not, here's another question, does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Haggim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. I don't know about you, but I feel like I missed something. We're like seeing the opening scenes of a movie where they're all gathering their forces. We see Barak's going up and getting his 10,000 men and Sisera hears about it. So he gathers his chariots and they're getting ready and they're getting ready to fight. And then all of a sudden... And Israel won, and they pursued him. And you're like, wait a minute, where's the epic battle scene that we were supposed to see? Like, what, what happened? What, why didn't the historical author of this decide to write how the battle was won? It seems kind of interesting. Like, it, it just seems so immediate. And you're just like, well, hang on, what happened here? And why is Cicero running away on foot? Well, cool thing about this, particular judges. The next chapter, chapter five, uh, is kind of a duet that Barak and Deborah write, which I think it's cool. After the battle's won, they write this song together because they're still friends uh, and they still get along. And they would decide to write this song together, kind of depicting what the story is, is all about and their own personal words, which not often do you get to hear these epic stories and hear the personal words of the people that were in them. But here in this story, we get this. And so it's really cool. Uh, and I wanted to point out a couple of the verses that you see in chapter 5. So verses 4 and 5 and 20 and 21 of chapter 5, they say this. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water 
The mountains quake before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. From the heaven, from heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. So, what tradition says based on this and what we see here is that God came through by sending rain. It was probably the dry season. You wouldn't send out your chariots of iron in the, in the, the wet season. And so during the dry season, it's a desert. There's usually not a cloud in the sky. And I'm betting there wasn't a cloud that day to begin with. That's just my own personal take. But I have, I have a big understanding of how awesome our God is. And I, I feel like there was just not a cloud, not a chance. And then all of a sudden, something happened. A storm came. The earth shook. And the rains came down. And suddenly, Sisera's biggest thing that was giving him the, the strength to defeat all his enemies, the thing that gave him his power and his authority, the, the thing that gave him the fear over everyone else, these 900 chariots of iron that were, enabled him to oppress people cruelly, suddenly were his greatest asset are now his biggest flaw. God exploited it. He knew, oh, Iron sinks in the mud. So if I get him close near to that river, he goes down there, and I I stir up the waters of the river, and I bring the rains down, those chariots aren't going anywhere. And suddenly, that's exactly what happens. So I feel like this battle was actually pretty immediately. Like, they won without having to try very hard. Because the rains came down and stopped the chariots in their tracks. And they were pretty easy to defeat. And that's probably backed up by the phrase that he ran away on what? Foot. Chariot got, uh, chariot's a much faster way to get away. But he's running away on foot. Because chariot got stuck. So that's, that's what tradition would say. That's how the battle was won. How great our God is that he would show up. And it's in those moments that you think, oh man, the odds are stacked against me and you're afraid. And then God just changes the narrative a little bit. Oh yeah, let's throw some rain in there. Suddenly this battle's easy. Easy to overcome. I don't know about you, but I've seen that happen in my own life many times where I felt like the odds were stacked against me and then something happens and suddenly I'm like, why was I afraid at all? God's a big God. Let's carry on in the story. Verse 17 through 21. But Sisera fled away on foot. Just reminding us of that fact. To the tent of jail the wife of Heber the Kenite. Oh yeah, Heber, that's right. And he's on, the, he's on the route to Sisera's hometown. So everyone's running away back home. Sisera's probably on his way back home to find allies to help him to reestablish his army, maybe to gather more uh, allies to, to fight. But on the way, he runs across Heber the Kenite's tent. And here's Jael, the wife of Heber. For there was a place between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened up a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg 
and she took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the tent peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And three of the most redundant words in the Bible, so he died. (laughs) If you didn't know already, can't live from that apparently. Uh, Definitely don't try it at home. I don't really know how someone softly or tenderly or sweetly goes up and hammers a tent peg in someone's head, but she managed to do it. All I do know is I really hope that afterward, you know what, I bet you, this is it. This is the moment when the phrase, nailed it, came. So anyway, so anyway, yeah, that's, she coined it right then, I'm sure. Corbin's version of the Bible, yeah. So yeah, we have this, this story. And uh, sister is delivered into the hands of a woman, just like God said. He runs into her. He thinks this guy's an ally. He's definitely not an enemy, so I'm safe. So he lies down. He's tired. It's been a long day. Suffered a really big defeat. Yeah, it's deflating. And he goes and meets this girl, and she's like, oh, hey, I got a, I got a bed. I got some milk. Why don't you just lie down? I'll protect you. And so he does. He goes into the tent. He says, I'm thirsty. Give me some water. And he, she says, I'll, I got some milk here. What does warm milk do for you? Makes you sleepy. (laughs) So after a long day, he's tired. He's running away. He feels safe now. He feels secure. She'll protect him. She gives him warm milk. He falls asleep. So she gently, softly, goes up to him, walks carefully so he doesn't wake up, and rams a tent peg through his temple. And apparently that's how you die. So... He's delivered. He's defeated. Sisera, this great general with his 900 iron chariots, are defeated. Why a woman, though? Why was that important? If we're going with the idea that God had already established that, God had already determined that this was what was going to happen, that Sisera was going to be delivered into the hands of a woman, why? Why is that significant? Why was that important? And why is Deborah a woman, the prophetess and the judge at this time? Why, why are those facts significant? If it's not because men just wouldn't step up and do it, why is it important? Why would God want to set that narrative? Well, let's again look at chapter 5. And we're going to look at 28 and the beginning, all the way through the beginning of 30. And this is again, this is Brock and Deborah. They're writing a song after the battle's been won. And they're commemorating all that God had done, how he delivered his people. They're even calling out some of the other Israelites for not rising to their aid. They're just singing a song, telling the story from their perspective. And at the end of it, they decide to mock Sisera's mom. And it says this, verse 28, Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess answer, indeed she answers herself, Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man. So it was probably relatively common practice to take women and make them your wives and stuff. The Israelites did that from time to time. Um, But they would usually marry them and make them part of their family and stuff and take care of them from that point on. But we get from this idea, especially with the the phrase that is, uh, Israel was oppressed cruelly, and also that the man that we're talking about this throughout this whole story is Sisera, not Jabin, the king. We're talking about Sisera, the commander of the army, and we get an idea from this 
the end of their song that Sisera had a practice, a practice of taking the wives and dividing them up among the men and using them as objects. He was cruel and he was oppressing and the people he was cruelest to and most oppressing was women. So if you're God, a judge that wants to bring about restoration and justice, who better to use than a woman prophet and a judge and a woman that he would have taken advantage of? And notice how it happens. It's in his vulnerable state. It's when he feels safe and secure, when he, what he should have been doing, what he should have been providing for women everywhere was security and safety, and, and that should have been his role, and he preyed upon them when they were vulnerable. Now, in his vulnerability, a woman has killed him. He has been defeated, and there is justice. A God that is righteous and wants to bring justice into the hands of the people that have been most exploited. So, he's defeated. He's dead. Let's read the rest of the story. Verse 22 through 24 of chapter 4. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, so this is Barak now, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on the day God subdued Jabin the king, so on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. If you didn't know, his name is Jabin king of Canaan. We don't hear his name at all throughout the whole thing. And then all of a sudden it's three times in the last few verses. And I think there's a significance here that a lot of us place the evil in, we give it a face, right? It's the king at the time. It's the oppressor. It's the Sisera. It's the Jabin. It's the Eglon. It's the, the, that person. But God is at war, not against people. People are easy to defeat. He's at war against evil. He's sending a message. He won't tolerate it. He won't allow it. He won't allow it amongst his people and he won't allow it amongst other people and he's going to fight against it. Cicero was the main, the person that was oppressing the people most and causing the most evil, so he's the person that God was defeating and humiliating. He's the one that he was fighting against because it's the evil that God wants to fight against, not the people, not the kings. They, they are insignificant ultimately. That's why we don't need to even talk about him that much. Because it's the story of God defeating evil. And then, at the very end, first, uh, chapter 5, at the very end of their, their song, it says, And the land had rest for 40 years. Do you guys remember in the beginning of the, chapter 4 how long they had been oppressed? It's 20 years. And how long did they have peace? 40. So one of the other themes that I see that crops up in Judges is these numbers that we see, how long they're oppressed and how long they have peace. If you remember from last week, or if you go back and watch it, you'll see that Ehud came along after 18 years of oppression, and it lasted as long as he lived for 80 years. A lot of times I think we read through the Old Testament, we focus on the oppression, the oppression and think, how could God do that? But he also gives them much more peace then he gives them oppression. That's a, it's a very common theme throughout the entire Old Testament. Letting people know that, yeah, I, I will let you go through hard times. But I've got a lot longer of peace and prosperity and, 
and enjoyment of life, and I'm going to fulfill and protect you, and I'm going to draw near to you for a lot longer than you're ever going to be oppressed. It's an important thing to remember while we're here on earth. We got a lot longer of peace than we will ever have of oppression. One of the things that I think happens in for the Israelites is it says most of the time when the judges die, that's when they again fall into. That's how the the start of chapter four begins. Ehud died, and after that, they start to sin. And why? Why? Why is it at that moment that the judge the judge is gone? Yes, eighty years has passed, but also the judge is gone. And why is that significant? And I think it's because. They had a living embodiment of what God did to remember. Oh, there's Ehud. I remember what God did in his hands. Well, his hand. I, I remember what God did. And every generation was taught, oh, you see, that's Ehud. Let me tell you kids about it. You weren't here for it, but that man, he was used by God and delivered us. And they tell all those people, but once they're gone, once they're weak and old and frail, and then they move on from the earth, People start to forget. They start to forget what happened. They start to forget what God had done for them, and they start to move on, and they start to, oh, these other gods actually sound kind of enticing. What does our God do again? I forget. He hasn't done anything for a long time. So, you know, maybe, maybe we start turning to these other gods. We start assimilating into the culture around us. And then they do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so one of the things I think is important for us to remember, to do, is to remember. I left in your notes a a spot for you to write down. I only put three slots in there. I'm sure you can come up with more. What are some of the victories God's won in your life? What have you forgotten? What do you not live remembering? What do you not have tattooed on your brain that you've got through? How many times have you fallen to your knees, desperately crying out to God, and he delivered you, and you've forgotten about it? Now, I'm not perfect. I know that's a surprise for most of you, but I'm not. I know. It's disappointing. But I face the same things. (laughs) I mean, I I go through those moments where I desperately cry cry out to God because I have no idea what's going on or what he's doing. And I forget all the time how many times I've done that before and how many times he's delivered me from things that are even worse than what I'm facing ahead of me. And we forget that this notion of like moving forward, it's a good thing. We should keep moving forward, but we should do so trusting God. And how do we do that? By looking back at what he's already done for us. Because the things ahead, they're scary. They're unknown. I don't know how I'm going to get through that, but I do know how I got through all of that. And that's with God's help. And I got through and I, and we'll get through it again. So don't be like the Israelites and forget. Remember. Write those things down. Think about them. Dwell on them. Be grateful for them. Don't forget to thank God for all that he's done. And if you want to take some time to think about those things while I I go over the next part, that's totally okay. I just want to share some of my thoughts about this story and what, what the implications are for us. Uh, so the first thing that I I wanted to, to share is that traditional does not mean biblical. There is an idea uh, that has been raised that a lot of the traditions that we have were based on the Bible, and that's not always true. As Christians and as a culture, uh, there are plenty of things that have biblical relevance and that were founded in the Bible. That's awesome. But not all of them. So some traditional things aren't biblical. 
And the only way we know that is by reading the Bible and going through and thinking, oh, actually, this is what the Bible says. We see Deborah, a woman, as a prophet and a judge. That's two of the major three offices that they had in the Old Testament. The only other one's a priest, which is the one thing that God said is supposed to be for men. But she is the other two. She is leading her people. She has been given spiritual gifts and has been given messages from God. And so she is supposed to give these things. And she's supposed to do these things for Israel. And the people look to her for her wisdom and her guidance. Barak doesn't want to go into battle without her. She is important. She has spiritual gifts. She has a role to play and she leads well. And she does so humbly. That's... That's what we see in the story, and that's what we see throughout. And there's only two areas where the Bible depicts and says that these these titles are not meant for women. Priest in the Old Testament and elder in the New Testament. It's just what the Bible says. Again, we can wrestle with those things, absolutely. I question why all the time. But I do so with the understanding the Bible's right and I'm wrong. I just want to know why. I think that's okay. I think it's an okay place to be. I think you can do that. But just understand that what the Bible says, what God says, at least from my understanding of what I've done in my life and what I've seen in my life, it always works out better God's way than mine. What goes into that also, what I've seen in a lot of the debates is uh, this idea that has been, it's been changing and shifting over time. And I think it's part of our culture affecting the church. But you got to understand, it's not higher, but it's lower. The goal is not to rise up above others, but to lower yourself and serve. Read Jesus' words. Over and over again, he talks about this, that the highest will be lowest, and the lowest will be highest, that the whole point is to serve. And he modeled it perfectly by not only serving everyone around him, but also being a sacrifice for all of us. What Christ set up was a a method of service and humility. We see that in Deborah, too. When God calls her to go get Barak, she doesn't say, I don't need no man. She says, okay. He's a warrior, and you called him to lead, so she goes and does. She has her job. She has her gifts, and God has given it to her, so she leads, and she does it well. And when God tells her to humbly go find Barak and tell him to lead the army, she says, hey, Barak, it's your turn. She does so faithfully. And she does so humbly. When you see people on a stage, and this is where our culture, I think, affects the church, is that there's this idea that because we have a voice, we have influence, and we have power, we have authority, we have fame. Not that I do, but that that's what this stage brings. That's not what it's about. That's not what it's supposed to be about. Some people that stand on these stages, they... They give that connotation, I'm sure. But there's also an audience of people that lap it up and love it. There's actually a podcast going around right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill that's talking about this exact phenomenon that we lift up these leaders, usually before they're ready, and we glorify them. Not God. Glorify these leaders that we think are special and important. But Jesus set up a ministry of service. The people that are on stage are supposed to be the most servant-hearted. 
Thad, our senior pastor, isn't supposed to have the most power and be the highest among us. He's supposed to be the lowest. You're supposed to look down on us. Not necessarily like feel pity on us, but you're supposed to look at us and see and understand that we're here to serve you. Dad's the biggest servant of all. He even has to serve me. <laughs> but that's, that's how the church is supposed to be set up, and that's how things are, are supposed to go. And somewhere along in these debates, we're reaching and trying to attain something, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. Don't put people on a pedestal that aren't supposed to be on a pedestal. We're here to serve. This is an act of service, not one of fame or influence or power or authority. God gets the glory. Last thing, assimilate into Christ, not culture. This is what the Israelites keep falling into and what we'll see as we continue on in Judges. The Israelites continue to let the culture around them affect them and they turn into it and that's where the, the evil arises in God's eyes and the oppression comes. That's where the sin happens. And I, we just explained that way that the church kind of is affected by culture, but there's another way that I see growing. There's a new God out there that people are worshiping and it's this idea that if I find the perfect role, the perfect place for me, the right people group, this niche that I belong to, that I've decided this is me. I've deconstructed everything that was told to me, everything that appears to me. I've deconstructed all of that to decide for myself what I am and what, I, what I'm about. It's a new God. Because, and this is why I know it's a God, because people think that once you've found that, you'll find all your purpose Happiness, joy, fulfillment, acceptance, and love. It'll all be found once you find that perfect, that perfect identification. Our, word is, our world is worshiping that right now. Believing that. We as Christians should know better. That those things, those love, joy, acceptance, purpose, fulfillment, those are only found in Christ. Knowing who you are in his kingdom. Who he created you to be and what he has planned for you to do. That's the God we serve. We serve him. The universe revolves around him, not us. And we have to accept humbly what he's given us and give back generously, as he's done for all of you. That's the culture that we are supposed to be setting, and that's the culture we're supposed to be fighting against. Not this idea that we need to find whatever we want and whatever works for us and whatever makes us feel most comfortable, but serving a God who's going to use us and bring about his glory to restore everybody to relationship with him. That's what we're called to. So don't allow the culture to come in and tell you, oh, this is what I was, I, I decided for myself, this is what I am, I was designed for. And I'm going to throw off everything that everything else tells me. I, I don't care what the Bible says. If it disagrees with me, then it's wrong. Don't allow the culture to affect you in such a way. Assimilate into Christ instead. Let's move towards communion. Once again, I just want you to, guys, everyone to remember this. First of all, if this, if this is a new church for you, everyone's welcome to take this that believes in Jesus. If he's your Lord and Savior and you, you believe in him and live life for him, then take this with us. We, we want you to do that. But we do this every week to remember, and one of the things that I want us to remember this week is not just what Jesus has done. That should be number one on your list, by the way, of the victories God's won in your life. This should be number one. You can put it back and write like before number one if you want. But 
This is also a calling. When you take part in this, Jesus passed it amongst his disciples and he was saying when, you, when they take part in this, not only are they receiving the service from him, from him, but they're called by him to serve the same way. You were called into service humbly to accept the position and role that God has given you and to do it well and faithfully like Deborah and Barak. Whether or not you get the glory, in fact, you're not supposed to, it's supposed to be God's anyway. He set that up here by saying, this is, this is the way I'm calling, this is the life I'm calling you to. This is the, the way that I'm calling you to live your life and that's to serve, to sacrifice, to love like Jesus has loved us. So he passed the bread amongst the disciples, he broke it. He said, this is my body which I break for you. Take and eat. Then he passed the cup. He said, this is my blood which I will shed for you. Take and drink. Let's pray. Hey God, thank you. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for your son and the sacrifice he made. May we be reminded of it all the time. May we be reminded of all the victories you won in our life. So when we face new trials, we'll remember how many times you've been there for us. And God, please use this church. I, as one of the servants here called by you, I, I say, God, use me in whatever way I can. If there's people out there that need, need help, need love, need whatever I can provide, whatever you can use me to do, then do it. I pray, Lord, that that's the culture of this church. When people come in here, they, they know that we're here to serve you and serve each other. Not to glorify ourselves, not to lift anyone up, not, just you. Just to serve. Like you have served us. Thank you, God. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.